Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. This audio program has been carefully packed to the legal limit with a weekly allowance of non-governmentally approved deep thoughts per square minute of podcast. And now, here are your hosts, Judah and Noah. Greetings and welcome to episode four of season two of the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. This is Noah speaking to you from the Assembly of Silence Command Central. We are uh, once again confronted with the same situation that we had towards the end of season one, where life got too crazy and we were unable to get together, Judah and I, to have a conversation to uh, offer to you. It's just the nature of uh, this crazy life we're living, and I'm sure that many of you can uh, relate to that. So Judah was profoundly aware of what occurred last time we were in this situation, and so he was quick to provide me with some of his own content to uh, fill the time for this week's episode for fear that I might have something else along the lines of Maniklepto up my sleeves, which I really don't. But nevertheless... What follows is a talk that Judah gave recently at the Siskiyou School in Ashland, Oregon on December 5th of 2018, entitled Nourishing the Soul of a Child. Uh, I have not heard this, and so we will now be listening to this together, and perhaps in the next episode we'll spend a little time discussing it and a bunch of other stuff. So I hope you enjoy this, and we will catch you on the other end. As I started this journey uh, about 25 years ago, I was always looking for where is the connection between spiritual pursuits and nutrition. There's got to be a, you know, there's something in the physiology. There's got to be a merging there. And when I discovered Rudolf Steiner's work, he was the one who gave me that, that key insight as to how the physiology and nutrition and um, how there's a real merging there between the physical body and the life of the soul and the life of the spirit. And so over the course of the last decade, I've been pursuing the work of functional medicine, understanding the physiology on a much deeper level and overlaying that with anthroposophical concepts that Rudolf Steiner brought about the essence of the human being. So looking at what is the physical body what is the soul? What is the spirit? And then finding in the physiology, using the physiology as a gateway into the spiritual world. So what I'd like to do tonight is present to you, um, from Steiner's perspective, his concept of the fourfold human being, if you're familiar with that. How many people are somewhat familiar with Rudolf Steiner's work? Great, because most of you, how many people have children here at the Waldorf School? Most people. Okay, excellent. So there's going to be some, some basic understanding here. Um, so I want to take you into the essence of the essential nature of the human being according to Rudolf Steiner and then work to show the, the relationship between the different bodies he discusses and then lead you into what is nourishment. What is nourishment really? Many times we just think it's what goes in our mouth, but hopefully we'll create a broader perspective of that uh, by the time we're done tonight. And then look at how to nourish 
the child. And I hope by the time that we finish tonight, all of us walk out with some, 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 something inspiring, something that we can take away and, and be moved by. So, um, and I'll be happy to take questions when we're done. If you have questions, you can write them down. So, so Rudolf Steiner talked about um, the fourfold human being. And he discussed that there's these fourth sheaths. You could look at them as sheaths or bodies that the human being has. And the first one would be the physical body, the most obvious one that we get to see all the time. And he would say that the physical body is made of the earth. It's of the mineralic world. And in and of itself, its trajectory is death and decay. So it's, it's just, it's this physical body made of the earth from dust we came from dust will return. And what the benefit of the physical body is, is that it has these sense perceptive organs, our eyes, our ears, our nose, our mouth, our skin, to take in our experience of the external world. Now, the physical body requires an enlivening force, and he would call that the etheric body or the life body. And this is what brings life or that, that uh, the growth aspect to the human being. So if we said the physical body was of the earth, we could look at it like a rock. A rock doesn't grow, nor does it wither and decay. You know, it kind of is. It will degrade over time, but it doesn't have growth forces or decaying forces. Whereas with the life body, this is where we kind of come into uh, uh, what our relationship with plants is like, where plants have growth forces. A plant grows and it dies and it decays. You can find growth and flourishing and withering and decay and simultaneity in the plant world. And you can see that in the human being as well. So the life body is this enlivening force that comes in and brings life to us. And from that perspective, the glandular system, our endocrine system, is really the seat of the life body. It's glandular secretions that bring this life force into the body. And we'll go a little deeper into that in a minute. And then the third body he would talk about is the astral body, or we could call that the soul body. And this is the realm of our thinking, our feeling, our will impulses, drives, desires, passions, instincts. And the soul puts the physical body on like a jacket. And it uses it because it has the sense perceptive organs. So it uses it to take in the experience of the physical world through the senses. So what we see, what we hear, what we taste, what we touch, what we smell, informs our private inner world of our thoughts and our feelings. And our thoughts and our feelings in combination elicit will impulses or actions. And that takes our private inner world of thinking and feeling and stamps it back out on the outer world, making it permanent. So, and that's the, the, the soul body. And this is really where the vast majority of our work, this is really where the work is. And so we could say that health exists in the life body and disease originates in the soul body with consciousness. It's our thoughts and our feelings and our actions that we're really here to transform. And so... Um, and that's really what we're going to focus on tonight. That's, that's the main thing. Because that's what we're working with constantly. We're constantly dealing with what we're thinking and what we're feeling 
and our actions in the world. And that's really what we're dealing with with our children too. You know, trying to, trying to uh, um, uh, cultivate healthy thinking, feeling, and willing in our children so that they have healthy thoughts, balanced emotions, clear will impulses. Does that make sense? Would everybody agree with that? Yeah. Sometimes it's a bit of a challenge though, isn't it? I have three. I have, I have to try. <laughs> Speaking from a little direct experience, I have a 15-year-old, a 17-year-old, and a 20-year-old, so I've been through it. Um, <laughs> and then the fourth body that we could talk about is what he would call the I, or the capital I, I. Um, and, and, and for sake of modern era language, I would call this the higher self. It's kind of like our higher self. But the I is like that. It's that um, mm, our individual essence, the, uh, you could say it's the essential core of our personality lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. And, and one way that he would put it is that only I can say I. Like nobody here can say I about another individual. Only I can say I. So it taps us into a universal I. So there's really only one I. So we could say that the more individualized we become, the more universal we become in that respect. Uh, but we're not going to really deal with that because it's a little more, that's a little more nebulous. We're going to really stick with the life of the soul here because it can get really complicated really fast. If you've ever delved into his work, you know that. Anyone ever been like really just like, what is he saying? <laughs> I just read that sentence 20 times. <laughs> it took me five days to get through a paragraph. You know, so it, it, you know, anyone who's delved into his work has probably had that experience. So, um, so there's this beautiful relationship that exists between the soul and the life body and the physical body. Because the physical body is here. It's, it's what's getting us around and, and it requires... Uh, it needs to be healthy and vibrant. Uh, it needs good life for us to keep it going. Um, it's constantly moving against the trajectory of death and decay. So it's like, it's, you know, it's moving against entropy, really. That's a big job. And so you, you need this, these forces to do that. And, and as far as I can tell, and Maybe somebody else can add to this. I don't know. But as far as I can tell, sense information streams in from the outer world. Right? I was saying this just a moment ago. So this, the outer world presses in upon us through our sense perceptive organs. So you're hearing me and you're looking at me. And so pressure waves from my voice are, 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 are touching in against uh, hair filaments in your inner ear. And frequencies are being pulled apart and going to different parts of the brain, the temporal lobes, and you're seeing me, and really what your brain sees is me upside down and reversed, and which is really kind of wild to think about. You know, it doesn't see a whole image. It's, I'm literally upside down and reversed, and then colors going to one area of the brain, and textures going to another area, and movements going to another area, and somewhere something puts it all together as a whole image, and you see this complete image, right? Um, so, but that's all pressing in upon the ocular nerves. Right? Smells go into the limbic system of the brain and they engage the brain. So what happens is sense information streams in from the outer world and it presses in upon our nervous system. 
and via the nervous system it goes to the brain for processing. And at that point, glandular, then it interacts with the endocrine system. And that's where we get glandular secretions like hormones, we get neurotransmitters that are secreted, neurochemicals that are secreted. And based on our perception of the information we're taking in, that's what's going to stimulate the different hormones to be released. So a great example of this is if, um, as a nutritionist, I, I put two people in a room and uh, I put the same beautiful plate of food down. We have a gourmet meal made, smells beautiful, lots of color, rainbow of colors, it looks beautiful, it smells great, it's absolutely delicious, texture's fantastic, you know. And one person loves food. One person has an absolutely healthy relationship with food. When they see food and they smell food, they get really excited. Their digestive forces start to go. They're salivating. Stomach's starting to growl. They're like, their whole being is ready for that food, ready to digest that food. And, and so they eat with gusto and it's all good. They love it. The other person, maybe they struggled with an eating disorder at some point in their life. And food stimulates fear in them. It triggers a fear response. Well, the hormones that that person's going to secrete are gonna be completely different than the hormones the other person's going to secrete. The other person, their digestive forces are revved up. Um, the person who has fear in response to food, their digestive forces are gonna shut down, right? So their stomach's not gonna produce a whole lot of stomach acid. Gut motility's gonna slow down. They're going to be in their autonomic nervous system, they're gonna be in this sympathetic fight, flight, freeze, react mode, whereas the other individual is in their parasympathetic, their rest, digest, repair, respond mode. And so really perception is a, is a really key, key part of this. The way that we perceive the information that comes in is such a key part to what happens next in the glandular system. And that's where we start to have this really uh, dynamic interaction between the autonomic nervous system and the glandular system. And so, uh, um, as that information streams in, an individual is gonna have particular thoughts. Those particular thoughts, based on their perception of that information, is gonna stimulate feelings. Feelings and thoughts combine to stimulate actions. This is what we're always working with, with ourselves and with our children. So information, percept, then feeling, and then action. So it's information, nervous system, glandular system. And the mediator between this experience is really the heart and the lungs. That is the integrator and the mediator between all this information that's streaming in. He talked about a threefold human being as well, which he said there's a nerve sense pole because the vast majority of our sense perceptive organs are in our head, right? our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our nose. So there's a nerve sense pole. And then there's a metabolic pole. So that's the digestion. And then there's the rhythmical pole. And that's the heart and the lungs. And what we're finding today, what science is finding today, is that 
actually the heart is the organ that can create balance in the autonomic nervous system. And there's a wonderful institute called the HeartMath Institute. Has anybody ever heard of the HeartMath Institute? Absolutely, great. So they've been researching the nature of communication between the heart and the brain. And the heart, just so you know, is this massive uh, 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 electromagnetic generator. So it generates about 5,000 times the electromagnetic activity than the brain does. So all of us have a, a field that goes out about 8 to 15 feet around us and uh, of electromagnetic activity, electromagnetic activity emanating out from the heart. And the heart can actually get the brain to entrain with it. And when you do that, you can create balance in the autonomic nervous system. And there's something called heart rate variability, which is the measurement of time in between heartbeats. And the greater the variability, the healthier the heart is, the more resilient an individual is. And we can look at resilience as the ability to prepare for, respond to, and recover from stress, challenge, and adversity. And so, uh, we can actually use the heart by generating positive feelings like gratitude, appreciation, care, empathy, devotion, compassion, love, joy. By actually cultivating the felt sense of these emotions, which I would call them warmth emotions, they're like of a warmth element because when we cultivate them, you can feel warmth from them. Anybody ever notice that? You ever feel warmth when you're cultivating love or compassion, devotion? Yeah, it's, it's a warmth element, which is actually, in, in Steiner's work, warmth is uh, a sense perception. So the ability to perceive warmth. And we've all probably had that experience. You meet somebody and they're really warm, right? That's a warm-hearted person. Or you meet somebody who's really cold maybe standoffish, and you can feel that. Your heart can feel that. So it's a, another sense perception there. Not your traditional five senses. Um, but nothing about Rudolf Steiner was ever traditional. So <laughs> one of the things I like about him. Um, so the reason why I bring up the heart is because um, what we're finding today is how valuable of an organ of perception and thinking it is. More than half the cells of the heart are actually neurons, so which are, we traditionally associate with cells in the brain. So you could say the heart has its own brain. And you can, by cultivating warmth feelings or higher feelings, higher emotions, that actually sends that information up to the brain. The heart sends more information to the brain than any other organ in the body. So I think upwards of like 70% of the information coming to the brain from the body is coming from the heart. So the heart has a lot to say to the brain. Thank God. Because it can, this can use a check sometimes, can it? Like it's run, it can run away. And so the heart really can come in, really, if you've learned to work with it, the heart can really step in and be like, hey, calm down, brain, chill out. <laughs> Get back in line. <laughs> and uh, 
But if we, if we teach our kids this, what happens if we teach our kids how to work with their heart, how to cultivate a sustained experience of positive emotions, what happens is they begin to think and move and operate from their rhythmical center. And not so much from up here, or not so much from down here. Because we really have three centers of thinking. In Chinese medicine, they call them the upper, the middle, and the lower dantian. We can say, you know, uh, the, the brain, the heart, and the gut, because we all have gut instincts, right? Everyone has that experience. And we know that the gut and the brain function as a single unit for the most part, the gut-brain axis, and I'll talk about that a little later. So I just wanted to touch on the importance of the heart as we go, because this is a real sense of nourishment for our children. We're, we're in a highly intellectual time. You know, most school curriculums are really just focused here and very little here. And one of the beautiful gifts about Waldorf is that there's a lot coming from here in Waldorf education. Um, so, but we tend to be so cerebral and we forget about this. And what happens when we become dominant up here is it creates imbalances in our autonomic nervous system. We can actually get stuck in our sympathetic mode, which is fight, flight, freeze. We can get locked into that, and it can be hard to get out of the sympathetic mode. Is there a feedback? So there's just a little feedback. feedback. Keep, keep going. Okay, great. So, um, so, looking at nourishment, the technical definition of food, and most people associate nourishment with food, food that goes in the mouth. And food is, is I looked it up in, as a nutritionist once, I looked it up in the dictionary. Thought, what is food? I thought, what is, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, what, is actually, what actually is the definition of food? I thought I should know. <laughs> and uh, uh, it ends up that food is technically defined as any substance that can be eaten, drunk, or otherwise taken into the body that promotes growth, provides energy, and sustains life. So I thought, well, that's okay. You know, eaten, drunk, or otherwise taken into the body. And, and that, for me, triggered, well, you know, that might just mean that all of our senses are sources of food. What we hear, what we see, what we smell, what we touch. That's all, that's all food. Um, so we're really nourished by our senses. More than anything, we're nourished by our entire sensorial experience. So just as there's junk food that can go in the mouth, there's junk food that can stream into the ears, plenty of junk food for the eyes out there, right? So we, we, we really want to be uh, aware of how are we nourishing our children? And what are we nourishing our children with? What kind of sense experiences are we providing our children? Um, and our, sense, our senses really play two major roles. Uh, they are responsible for our incarnation process. Incarnation is just a fancy way of saying endowment with human form. Helps keep us in our body. Helps build up our body. And they're a source of nourishment. So they're food, and they're what 
helps with our incarnation process. So when we look at our little kids and you see this little being incarnating into this physical body and growing, their senses have everything to do with that. Their sense experiences have everything to do with that. And touch is the archetype of all the senses. All the senses touch in. The external world touches in to the inner world. So just as we think of touch as just physical touch between you know, yourself and something else or yourself and another person. But when you're eating food, the, the flavors are touching on taste buds. When you're smelling something, aromatic molecules are touching into receptor sites. When you're looking at things, light photons are touching in on rods and cones and pressing in. Touch is the archetype of all the senses. And so, healthy touch is really important. Not just healthy physical touch, because we know healthy physical touch helps a child grow. Infants that are massaged and touched and held grow faster uh, than children, than infants that aren't. And there was an instance with Romanian orphanages where there was more children than caretakers and a lot of kids were neglected and they had failure to thrive. So touch physically is really important, but touch in all the senses is really important. We have to, we cannot underestimate the importance of touch with our children. There's one thing that can deeply nourish the soul life of a child is its healthy touch. Physically, emotionally, mentally. Because as far as the brain is concerned, the neurons in the brain require three things for their overall health. And that's stable glucose, which we'll talk about, a steady supply of oxygen, and healthy stimulation. And that's what, that's what promotes uh, brain growth, or uh, uh, development of the neurons. So, how do we nourish a child? How do, how do you nourish a child? And I was thinking about this, and, and I, I came across the quote by Rudolf Steiner that really just kind of put something in place for me, and he said, and maybe some of you may have heard this quote before, or maybe you're familiar with it just from real life experience. Uh, to educate a child is to educate yourself. Right? To educate a child is to educate yourself. Why? Why is it that way? Well, a child has an incredibly deep desire to, and need, not just a desire, but a deep need to imitate. Children are all about imitation. And this begins from the very uh, moment of fertilization of the egg. Imitation starts with cellular reproduction. Imitation is a pattern from the very beginning. And imitation is a process of reproduction. 
And so how many times have you ever told your child to do something, but they always watch you do the very opposite thing of what you're telling them to do, and for some reason they seem to always do what you're telling them not to do, right? <laughs> right? It's like, it's, it's that classic, do as I say, not as I do, and that just never works. Anyone have that experience as a parent? <laughs> I'll admit. <laughs> I'll, I'll be the first to admit that one. You know, so children are products of imitation. Why? Because they imitate to learn. It's how they get something in their system. So they imitate and imitate and they imitate until they get it. And once they got it, guess what it becomes? A habitualized pattern. <laughs> now you have a pattern on your hands. And good luck breaking that. Right? So... Um, so but the reality is, is that children's imitation of their primary care providers is what will be their major influence on their moral development as well as their physical formation. It's really important that we be what we want our children to be. So if we want to nourish the soul of our child, we have to learn how to nourish our own souls first. And as far as I can tell, a great starting place for that is learning deep self-care and gratitude and cultivating really healthy heart-based feelings that you can emanate out into your home environment with your children and that they can sync up with that because their nervous systems sync up with our nervous systems. Our children's nervous systems are totally tied to our own nervous systems. So we have the responsibility of setting the tone in the house for our children. And if we can set the healthy tone of a healthy nervous system, a calm nervous system, oh, Boy, just saying that, a calm nervous system in this day and age. <laughs> what is that? There's so much static in the environment right now. So much coming in via media. So much being pumped in all around us all the time that's designed to trigger our nervous systems to be in fight, flight, freeze, react mode and very little to promote rest, digest, repair, and respond. So, um, so we have to set the tone so that we can co-regulate our children's nervous systems for them because they can't do it. They don't have the faculties to do that. You're talking about a little being that's completely ruled by their emotional life. They don't have the cognitive faculties to think into their feelings and go, is this a proper reaction I'm having right now? <laughs> you know, you're, you're just looking at something that's totally ruled by their emotional life. Um, and, and so we have to be that anchor for them. We have to really be that anchor and, and, and create a cool, calm, you know, nervous system. You can look at the nervous system as heat. It's electrical activity. So it's heat. 
And the more keyed up it is, the hotter and faster it's running. So we want to cool it down. We want to be you know, cool and calm. And that's a challenge with kids, though, right? Because they're like the brightest mirrors you could ever possibly have. And if you want to really get to know yourself, have kids. And you'll see every weakness you possibly could about yourself. And they will trigger and stimulate so much inside of us that makes us want to really react. And then it's a great opportunity to breathe through it. <laughs> so... Um, So the first thing to do to nourish the soul of a child is to set the tone for, for um, a parasympathetic tone of your own nervous system. So, and I think cultivating uh, gratitude for those difficult moments and just cultivating warmth feelings and learning how to get into what we would call a coherent state. And coherence is where your heart and your mind and your emotions are all aligned and in sync. And when that state happens, your endocrine system syncs up and your immune system syncs up. And I like to call that now you're in a flow state. You're in this really dynamic flow state. And so learning how to get into coherence, learning how to do the inner work with a rhythmical pull of breathing and heart to get into a coherent state and, and sustain that as much as you possibly can. And do it, it's like a gym. I call it the heart gym in my work. And okay, you're now in the heart gym. And just like if you've ever gone to a gym and you look at all the equipment, you're like, my God, what is all this? I don't know how to use this. And you don't walk out an expert the first day. You gotta go back and you gotta go back and go back and keep practicing. And it's the same with the heart. It's the same with cultivating and learning to stay in coherence for longer and longer periods of time. So first and foremost, that, because it's, that's where you're going to be operating from in everything else you do. So that's the first way to nourish the soul of a child. I think the next way is imagination, is to cultivate healthy, imaginative thinking. So um, when you're looking at little kids, up until about the age of seven, kids live in the imaginal realm. It's like when you, know, you have your daughter and she's like, five or six and she's playing Princess Leia. And you're like, okay, Susie, time, time to come to dinner. She's like, I'm not Susie, I'm Princess Leia. And you're like, no, 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 Susie. She's like, I am not Susie, Dad. I am Princess Leia. And you're like, oh, that's right, you are. In her mind, she's like totally convinced, you know, I am Princess Leia. Do not call me anything other than that because that is who I am right now. They live in their imagination. It's amazing to watch that. You know, with my boys, they would be pirates, and it's like, you know, and they were like full on, they were really pirates. And so, like, to honor that, that healthy imagination in a child, that's such an important thing to develop because imaginative thinking is such a higher form of thinking. And this is how um, Einstein came to a lot of his. Uh, you know, theories. Uh, if anyone's familiar with the work of Goethe, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, um, that's how he came to, to do a lot of his work, is the ability to perceive something and then to go in and use your imaginative thinking faculties to 
um, gain even deeper insight into something. So learning to cultivate imagination with a child is deeply nourishing to their soul life because it's going to teach them how to think at a higher level. And so, um, and that can eventually, that imaginative thinking can eventually lead to um, inspiration. Meaning that if they can think imaginatively, there's a point in which inspiration can move and then intuition can be tapped into. You can get intuitive insights that way. So imagination can very much lead to intuitive thinking, which in my opinion is the highest form of thinking that we could possibly have. So imagination. So images, and, and coming back to the heart, the heart thinks in images. It's an organ of imagery. So what kind of images are we generating? Are they life-giving? Are they life-giving, dynamic imagery? Or is it more mechanistic? You know, a great example of this is, is the heart just a pump and that's it? It's just a mechanic pump that just pumps blood? Or is it so much more than that? Is it an organ of feeling? Is it an organ of thinking? Is it something so much greater than that? Is the, is the brain a computer? You know, we, have, we live in a mechanistic model, right, primarily, but we're not machines. We're dynamic living organisms, so we require, uh, you know, we have to think outside of the language that's been, pre- you know, been fed to us. So I find life-giving imagery, because really, we're the ones giving the world meaning. The world doesn't have meaning in and of itself. We're the ones giving it meaning. We're the meaning-making machines. So we're the ones giving our world meaning. And so what kind of meaning are we giving the world? What kind of meaning are we sharing with our children about the world, about themselves, about their connection to the natural world? So feeding their imagination is really crucial. Rhythm. Rhythm is the great healer. Rhythm heals the life body. The life body is the realm of health, as I said, but rhythm is a tremendous healer. The reality is is that we're rhythmical beings on a rhythmical planet in a rhythmical cosmos. Everything has rhythm. We're so rhythmical that we have genes called clock genes that are involved with maintaining all of our core physiologic functions. So these clock genes are literally tied into specific rhythms. So, uh, you know, in the past, many years ago, before there was grocery stores, (laughs) we ate seasonally, right? We ate what nature provided us. We ate seasonally. We lived according to the seasons. Now in the modern era, we're able to buck the seasons. We're able to extract ourselves out of the seasons. And we can have strawberries in December if we want them. And, and other things. But we are, in essence, we are rhythmical beings. And if you, you know, everyone's had kids for the most part. So how, how, how was your child when they missed their nap or you, they got off of their sleep rhythms? You know, 
What do you watch happen to your children when they get off the, they're, when they're little and they get off their sleep rhythms? It's like, whoa, <laughs> who just showed up? I don't know you. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, rhythm. Like kids are nourished by going to bed at the same time, taking naps at the same time, eating at the same time, and what we're finding is. Same with adults. We don't grow out of that one. <laughs> we, we are locked into that. All, there's, I was, I was, several years ago, I was watching a lecture by a functional medical doctor, Jeffrey Bland, who's a walking encyclopedia, and it was all on rhythm. And he said, actually, what we're finding is that uh, if you eat at the same times every day, that actually supports your physiology uh, uh, in a way that we, we still have yet to understand um, uh, in, in such a profound way. Our microbiome in our gut has a rhythm to it. It has a rhythm of activity to it. So we're really rhythmical beings. So making sure that our children have rhythm in their life making sure that they're getting fed at the same times, making sure that there's something in their life that they do at the same time every day to establish healthy rhythms. Deeply nourishing to the soul and enlivening to the life body. Healing, therapeutic to the life body. And diet. Diet is crucial here. So first and foremost, as far as food is concerned, a healthy relationship with food. Having a healthy relationship with food is crucial. So much of the work that I do as a nutritionist isn't about telling people what to eat. It's about having people come to terms with their relationship with food. It's amazing. It's really amazing that that's where the vast majority of the work is. It's just helping somebody come to terms with their relationship with food and heal that relationship. Because our relationship with food, in my opinion, is the most intimate relationship we have. It really is. It's, we, we cannot exist without it. It's what becomes us. It's what keeps us in our body, it's what gives us the life force we need to do the work we're here to do, to fulfill our destinies, really. Um, it goes into us, and it becomes us through this miraculous alchemical process that we take uh, something that has no human qualities in it whatsoever and ingest it and strip it of all of its inherent properties to the point it's broken down to its most basic fundamental units of proteins to amino acids, starches to glucose molecules, and fats to fatty acids. And at that point, it crosses the threshold of the outer world of the intestines because the intestines are just a tube. It's an open-ended, walled-off tube. It's the outer world running through the inner world of us. 
And nothing can cross that barrier of the intestinal lining until it's broken down to its most basic fundamental units. And at that point, and only at that point, do nutrients cross the threshold of the intestinal tract and get into the inner sanctum of the blood, at which point they're resurrected, re-enlivened with your own physical, soul, spiritual properties and become you. So that piece of chicken that you ate no longer has any chicken attached to it and it becomes you. It's really a miraculous process. So having children have a healthy relationship with their food, having them in the garden, having them in the kitchen, taking them to the grocery store, you know, having them cultivate this relationship with food that will last them a lifetime. It will save them life, it will save them a lot of time uh, as far as um, attaining optimal health is concerned. So, uh, healthy relationship with food. Healthy sensorial nourishment. I've already talked about that. But when you're engaging in food, smelling it, working with it, making it colorful, making it something that pleases the senses. Because if you engage all your senses with your food, chances are you won't need as much of it either. Because you'll be so deeply nourished by it. So I, I, I encourage you someday. Just sit down to a meal, and before you, you start eating it, really smell it. Really look at it. Take it in. Take it in with your eyes. Take it in with your nose. And when you eat it, eat it really slowly and taste it. Really taste it. Experience the textures of it. Allow it to saturate you. And you might find you eat a lot less of it. I did this in a meditation with chocolate once in a class. I mean, yeah. what, what better way to go than with chocolate? Because you know, that's something that you can put in, you can just keep eating. You know? <laughs> Especially if it's really good, you can keep eating it. But if you sit with it for a while and you like really smell it and you really look at it and you really put it in your mouth and you let it melt slowly and you just really take it in with your whole being, that one little piece of chocolate will saturate you and you, you won't want anymore. Because it's, it's, it's reaching something deeper in us. It's, it's, it's deeply nourishing. But as far as, as so, so, stimulating the senses around food, healthy relationship with food, and then as far as food is concerned, maintaining stable glucose levels is one of the most important things you can do for a child to nourish the life of their soul. Because glucose is directly tied to all of the key neurotransmitters. So we're going to do a little neurotransmitter 101, I'm going to get a little scientific, and hopefully not too, too, too scientific, but I think enough just to, to get a point across. Because so many times with the, with the standard American diet, lovingly known as a sad diet, the standard American diet is a tremendously sad <laughs> diet, <laughs> um, uh, you know, we ride this blood sugar roller coaster. 
When you eat refined, when an individual eats refined processed foods that have had the nutrients stripped out of them, that food breaks down really fast and it injects glucose into the bloodstream really rapidly. And so you get this quick rise of blood sugar and when you hit that peak, it crashes just as fast. So it's like the roaring thunder of blood sugar that goes up and then you just crash. And when it goes down, it goes down below baseline and it stimulates a reactive hypoglycemic event, which is low blood sugar that leaves one feeling shaky or weak or irritable, emotionally imbalanced, foggy, inability to think clearly. Uh, anyone ever wait too long for their kid to eat? <laughs> and you proceed to watch an epic meltdown happen in front of your eyes and, <laughs> and you just like want to distance yourself from your child at that point because you're like, oh my God, what is that coming out of my child? You know, that's an epic hypoglycemic event. And so if, if there's anything you can do to nourish your child is maintain stable glucose levels rather than have them on this blood sugar roller coaster because what's happening is that when they're on this roller coaster, um, that all of the neurotransmitters get disrupted. So we have uh, acetylcholine is, is a major neurotransmitter for the autonomic nervous system. And it's, it's produced in the frontal lobe and it's involved with uh, or associated with cognitive maturity, uh, uh, motivation, and learning social responses. I think that's a little important. <laughs> Learning social responses is pretty important in this day and age. And when you're looking at hypoglycemia, when there's chronic or consistent events of hypoglycemia, that actually reduces the amount of acetylcholine produced in the brain. So now what you start to look at is maybe diminished uh, cognitive maturity. Um, and also insulin resistance can do this. And when you're on this blood sugar roller coaster, if you're constantly, if your child is constantly being flooded with glucose from high carbohydrate, high starchy foods that aren't balanced with adequate amounts of protein and fat, what happens is that you're getting this chronic flood of glucose. And the pancreas is an organ of perception for for glucose in the blood. So as, as glucose enters the bloodstream, the pancreas perceives this rise of glucose and it releases an, a hormone called insulin. And insulin's job is to chaperone glucose molecules to your cells. So insulin goes into the blood and it finds glucose molecules and it's like, glucose, my friend, come with me. I got you, we're gonna go over here, knock on the cell wall. So I was like, ah, oh, look at that, it's insulin glucose, my friends. Glucose, come on in, and the cell it takes glucose and it makes ATP and you get cellular energy and the cell can now do what it's supposed to do. Well, well uh, if you're flooding the bloodstream with glucose, meal after meal after meal, and you have, what happens is the pancreas, rather than like responding to glucose, it reacts. It's like, oh my God, there's a ton of glucose in the system. Just flood the system with insulin. So you get this surge of insulin into the system. So now you have too much insulin in the system circulating around in the bloodstream chronically and just kind of washing the cells in insulin. And the cells eventually, they're like, 
for the love of God, insulin. <laughs> Leave me alone. I, you've been coming and knocking on the door. I told you I got enough already. I don't need any more. And they start, they stop listening and they, and all, they become resistant to insulin. And that's insulin resistance. And so what happens then, the pancreas has to secrete more insulin, and now it's just kind of this war. And so, so insulin resistance is eventually what's going to lead an individual down the road to diabetes. And um, so, so hypoglycemia in combination with insulin resistance, either one of those is going to reduce acetylcholine levels in the brain. And that's going to impact cognitive maturity, learning social uh, social skills, um, and as well as motivation. And um, so what we can do is, one, make sure that our children have stable glucose levels. And I, this is going to be a theme because in my, in my work, in my experience, uh, there is no greater thing to do to promote longevity, to slow the aging process, and to bring the entire system into a, a calm state than maintaining stable glucose levels. Not just for the children, but for us adults as well. It is directly tied to so many chronic degenerative diseases. It's just over and over again. Every seminar I go to is all about blood sugar regulation for the most part. So what we want to do as far as acetylcholine is concerned, is that we can feed our children foods that are rich in choline. Choline is a B-like vitamin, and uh, it's taken up by the brain to produce acetylcholine. And it just so happens, this is where this gets fun, because we start to, get, start to butt up against um, what uh, we consider healthy foods to be. So, uh, one, I, before I go into that, I'm just gonna say there's only one right diet in the world, and that's the diet that's right for the individual, right? So there is no one-size-fits-all diet. You know, not everyone should be vegetarian. Not everyone needs to be vegan, raw, paleo. We could go on and on, the, the, the hundreds of different fad diets that are out there, what's popular now, right? So, um, so foods that are rich in choline are foods like fatty pork, like pork belly, like bacon is really rich in choline. Uh, some people love it. Some people are like, are you serious? <laughs> Seriously? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And what's really interesting is the fat profile of pork, this will be a shocker, is really closely related to that of olive oil. So don't be fooled. Um, beef and liver are both really rich in choline. And organ meats are absolutely phenomenally nutritious. And this is the first time in, in human history where we eat strictly the muscle tissue of animals. Our ancestors ate the whole thing. You know, they ate the organ meats as well because they're incredibly nutrient-dense uh, parts of the animal. Other foods that are really rich in choline are eggs and fatty cheeses, cream, uh, and nuts are all rich in choline. So you can make these part of a, a healthy diet for your child, and they'll get lots of choline to build up their acetylcholine in their brain. Another neurotransmitter that's really crucial is dopamine. 
And dopamine is like our joy-oriented neurotransmitter. When we do something that brings us joy, the brain releases dopamine. It also just ha so happens to be the addiction pathway as well. <laughs> We're not going to talk about that tonight. <laughs> um, but dopamine is also related to motor, cog uh, motor coordination, motivation, and reward, and um, uh, mood, attention, and learning. So really important. As well as uh, uh, another big one with dopamine is it's reinforcement to motivation and performance. So dopamine is a critical neurotransmitter for uh, motivation and reward. I think that's important with kids. Would anyone agree with that? <laughs> I think that's crucial. So when you have disruptions of blood sugar, high, chronic highs and lows, like the blood sugar roller coaster, we call that dysglycemia. Highs and lows, highs and lows, highs and lows. That decreases dopamine production. So stable glucose, once again. Healthy dopamine production. What I want you to get when I start talking about these neurotransmitters is that these are all thinking, feeling, and willing chemicals. These are responsible for the quality of our thoughts, the quality of our feelings, and the quality of our will impulses in the world. So that's why I'm focusing on these. That's, they're really important. I mean, we're talking about these little chemicals that are involved with the life of the soul. This is like where you can kind of start finding the soul in the physiology. Um, so foods that are really, uh, so dopamine, it's raw material is tyrosine. It's an amino acid called tyrosine. And foods that are really rich in tyrosine are beef and chicken and turkey. Uh, Omega-3 rich fish like salmon and mackerel, really great sources. Eggs, full fat dairy products, preferably grass fed. So talking about quality, it's all about quality. And um, avocados, almonds, and bananas are all really rich in tyrosine. So now you start to, you know, start pulling these foods into your, into your child's diet also, making sure, you know, like maybe an avocado a day. Uh, so making sure that they get fish once or twice a week, like salmon or mackerel. Uh, eggs over easy are great or poached because that yolk is incredibly nutritious. It's loaded with fat, it's loaded with cholesterol, which we need. Cholesterol is the raw material for all of our sex hormones like progesterone and estrogen and testosterone, cortisol, our stress hormone that's secreted by the adrenals. It's needed for the immune system. It's needed for so many things. So eggs, critical. Another really important amino acid is GABA. G-A-B-A, -A, GABA. Uh, GABA is related to relaxation. It's important for our kids. It's anti-anxiety. It's also anti-convulsant as well. And insulin resistance and hypoglycemia. There we go, back totally. We're just gonna, I'm just going to say the same thing over and over again at this point. I'm just going to be like a broken record to you. So oh, you're going to walk away and just go, 
You're, you're, all you'll remember is hypoglycemia and insulin resistance. <laughs> but um, hypoglycemia and insulin resistance decrease GABA synthesis. So it reduces the amount of GABA that the brain will produce. And the raw material for GABA is glucose. So you want stable, steady levels of glucose coming into in not highs and lows. Um, so, uh, and I'm going to talk, I'm going to kind of paint a, a picture of what a plate could look like for you so that you can walk away having some bit of understanding. The last uh, neurotransmitter that I want to talk about is serotonin, which is probably the more popular one. Most people are uh, uh, familiar with that. And serotonin is associated with anger regulation. It's a, a little important. Uh, um, Pain modulation, mood, sleep, mood, specifically uh, positive mood, a healthy mood about oneself even. Uh, Self-worth is also a part of serotonin. Um, appetite, gut motility, does a variety of things. And here we go again. Insulin surges from high-carbohydrate diets uh, uh, cause abnormal serotonin production. So... There's a theme here. Reactive hypoglycemia from high-carbohydrate diets uh, will, cause a will cause a decrease in serotonin production. And it just so happens that the pineal gland in the brain is the most serotonin-rich uh, tissue in the body. And serotonin is the raw material for another hormone called melatonin. Anyone ever heard of melatonin? What have you heard of melatonin for? Sleep. Yeah, it's all it's sleep. Well, it's circadian rhythm regulation and seasonal regulation. So it ties us into um, circadian rhythms and the cycles of the seasons. So melatonin is really important and its raw material is serotonin. So you want to eat foods that are rich in tryptophan. Tryptophan is an amino acid that is a precursor to serotonin. And so foods that are rich in tryptophan are foods like shrimp, scallops, fish like snapper and halibut, salmon, chicken, turkey, lamb, beef, liver. It's good to eat liver occasionally. And, uh, and then veggies like spinach and mushrooms. So as you can see, uh, uh, these neurotransmitters are, are highly dependent on protein-rich foods foods that uh, will sustain uh, a child for a longer duration of time. So in my experience working with my own kids as well as working with adults, what I find is that diets that are rich in fat and protein and moderate in carbohydrates is actually the most uh, uh, life-sustaining diet you can give. So starting a child's day off with a fat and protein-rich breakfast will set the tone for their blood sugar the rest of the day. And it will decrease cravings for sweets and snacky foods because what it will do is it will sustain them and they won't get hungry between breakfast and lunch or an adequate snack time. So there, there's less uh, 
less fluctuation in the blood sugar. They're going to have sustained energy. They're not going to crash an hour after they eat. Right? I do a challenge with our patients quite often. And I'll say, well, what do you eat for breakfast? And they'll say, well, I have a, you know, I have a bowl of cereal. Maybe I'll have a bagel with some cream cheese on it. I say, okay. I say, well, how about having some eggs and sausage and, uh, and, uh, and some avocado for breakfast? Do it for like a week. And then after that week, and notice how you feel and like your energy levels and your, your level of sustained feeling, like, you know, the duration of time between breakfast and lunch. How, how do you feel? How are your energy levels? And then after that week, go back to your original breakfast and, and do the same thing and tell me how you feel. And most of the time they come back and they say, wow, I had no idea when I had the carbohydrate-rich breakfast, I tanked in an hour or two, and I was hungry again and tired, but when I had the protein and fat-rich breakfast, I felt full, sustained, my energy levels were normal, I wasn't craving anything, and that's the power of fat and protein. In fact, our ancestors, were, they, they ate tremendous amounts of fat. The amount of carbohydrates we consume today is a really is is new, beginning with the agricultural revolution ten thousand years ago, which, in my opinion, is the worst event to have happened to human health. <laughs> it set off the trajectory for where we are today, and so we're not designed to be high carbohydrate consuming uh, um, uh, organisms. So when I, so when you think, oh, okay, you're saying all these things about these different foods. So what does my kid's plate look like? Half the plate and vegetables, cooked in some sort of good fat, butter, ghee, coconut oil, um, olive oil, avocado oil, cooked in some sort of really healthy oil because veggies love fat. Um, it enhances the nutrient absorption from them. And uh, a quality piece of protein, high, some quality protein along with it, and, uh, and then some fatty foods like avocado or olives, and maybe for dessert, a piece of fruit, like a little bit of fruit. But for the most part, veggies and protein and fat. And that is going to deeply nourish a child. And the, and the fat is going to calm the nervous system, actually, of the child. Fat is very calming. That's something with people who have anxiety, I'll actually, I'll actually ask them to eat higher amounts of fat. And they will get a direct calming experience from it. Because fat equals satiety. Fat triggers the feeling of fullness and satisfaction in our physiology. So we've been trained over the last many decades to believe that fat is bad for us, and in fact, fat is not bad for us. Fat is one of the best things we can consume. Obviously, we want to talk about quality of fats, but fat is absolutely crucial. Now, um, so that's a picture of what a plate could look like for a child. Uh, and, and now we're, we're descending in. So we've dealt with the, the mind, and we've dealt with the heart, and now we're going to go a little bit into the gut as well, because 
These are the three areas we need to focus on. And the gut, um, well, all these neurochemicals I was just talking about, all these neurotransmitters that I'm talking about that are brain-oriented, your serotonin, your GABA, your dopamine, uh, uh, and your acetylcholine, 99% of those are actually produced in the gut. So these are gut-born chemicals that the brain is using. And the gut and the brain function as a single unit. We call it the gut-brain axis. So what is happening in the gut will eventually happen in the brain. So if there's inflammation, chronic inflammation in the gut, that's going to translate right up to the brain and trigger inflammation in the brain. So uh, finding the foods that your children are sensitive to or allergic to, because food allergies will trigger in a child disruption of their capacity to think clearly and have balanced emotions and clear actions. So food allergies will trigger in children aggressive behavior. They'll trigger emotional, irrational, emotional states. So um, the epic meltdown may not be from hypoglycemia. It could be because they're allergic to chocolate. And when they eat chocolate, they have an epic meltdown. Anyone ever find a food that their child's allergic to and has a reaction like that? Yeah. So, um, so we really want to pay attention to what's going on in the gut. And a big part of the gut is the microbiome. And the microbiome is our collection of, of microbes in and on us. And the mi microbiome is involved with uh, um, the activities of most, if not all, of our biological processes that constitute our health. And so when we're born, we're born 99% human. By the time we die, we're 90% microbial. Yes, I know, right? It's kind of creepy. I, I like to pause after I say that. For a fact. <laughs> it's true. So we have about 23,000 human genes. And by the time we die, we have around 9 million microbial genes. So genetically speaking, we are considerably more microbe than we are human. What you really are is just a walking ecosystem. <laughs> right? I mean, the universe is really holographic. It's just repeating self-organizing systems. So what makes us think we're not a walking ecosystem? Our, our gut, the amount of biological diversity in our gut makes, it, makes us one of the most complex ecosystems on the planet. True story. We are one of the most complex ecosystems on the planet because of the biological diversity that exists in our gut. So we, we really want to make sure that the gut is well tended to. It is the foundation of health and everything will radiate out from there. So we want to make sure that the child's gut is super healthy. Right now, more and more than ever, we're seeing issues 
like irritable bowel syndrome, leaky gut, if you want a nice image there, leaky gut. Uh, anybody not know what leaky gut is? Everybody heard of leaky gut? So are the, as I said earlier, the, the intestinal tract is the outer world running through the inner world, right? And so you have uh, epithelial cells that make up the lining of the intestine, which are the same as your skin cells, epithelial cells. So it's your inner skin and handy diagram. So you have two epithelial cells here, and my fingers are villi, which is where nutrient absorption occurs. And where the hands meet is what's called a tight junction. And that prevents things from crossing the threshold of the intestinal tract and getting into the blood that shouldn't. But uh, from antibiotic use, from uh, high sugar uh, diets, from glyphosate, uh, Roundup, uh, GMO foods, what happens is that tight junction starts to weaken and it loosens and it allows things to cross into the blood that shouldn't. Undigested, undigested protein particles and bacterial fragments can get into the blood. And that's leaky gut. And when that happens, that's chronic, that starts to trigger inflammation and immunological responses. And uh, over time, uh, the gut will begin to deteriorate. And uh, at that point, what starts to happen is that deterioration of the lining of the gut will translate up to the brain and begin to deteriorate the blood-brain barrier as well, which is the lining around the brain that protects the brain from anything getting into it that shouldn't. So we have to realize that there's a direct relationship here. And so if there's inflammation in the gut, there's going to be inflammation in the brain. And if there's inflammation in the brain, that's going to translate back down to the gut and stimulate more inflammation. And now you have a vicious cycle. And when the brain is inflamed, guess what happens? Thinking becomes inflamed. And if thinking becomes inflamed, guess what happens? The emotional life becomes inflamed. And if the thinking and emotional life are inflamed, guess what happens? The will impulses are inflamed as well. So now all you have to do is look out into the world, watch the news for about 20 minutes, and see people screaming at each other, and unable to have a conversation, and that's what you're looking at, is, is inflammation spilling over into the world. So we want to make sure that our kids are not eating foods that they're allergic to, we want to make sure that they're eating fermented foods every day, sauerkraut, kimchi, some yogurt, different fermented foods to get a plethora of good bacteria in there. Because the bacteria, that's what's really key there. I tell people, don't believe everything you think because it may not be your thought. It could be coming from the bacteria in your gut and the composition and the quality of the bacteria in your gut will determine the quality of your thoughts many times. So, so making sure that our children uh, are eating uh, fermented foods. And that's going to facilitate the digestive process. And if there's healthy digestion happening down here in the gut, there's healthy digestion happening up here. We're, oh, we're digesting our sense experiences. So when people aren't digesting, well, many times they're having difficulty digesting something in their life. 
So we can start with working on digestion in our children, in the gut, and that will help them with digesting their sensorial experience also. And the last thing you can do to nourish the soul of your child is to acknowledge and observe uh, their karma and their destiny. Realizing that this little being has their own karma to work out and their own destiny to fulfill that may or may not be tied to your life. So observing that and supporting that journey for them because the goal is to grow into their individualized self and take up their own karma and fulfill their own destiny. And in doing that, you deeply, deeply nourish the soul life of your child and you're working way up into the spiritual domain with that. So in conclusion, Parenting really is an initiation. <laughs> Parenting is a modern day, well, it's in every, I mean, it's ever since the beginning. It is an initiation process. There is no owner's manual to this experience. You're in it with your child. No instruction manual, no owner's manual. Maybe you can use some astrology to see, you know, going on here with this child. Uh, but this, you know, this journey requires radical honesty and transparency with yourself, <laughs> first and foremost, and with your child at the right times, the right things. Like being fully human with your children and like acknowledging like, wow, you know, I screwed up there. <laughs> Sorry about that. I always tell my kids, hey, my job as a parent is to pass on some wounds to you. <laughs> Hopefully not the ones my parents passed on to me, but I'm sure there's a little bit of that sneaking in there too. But, you know, but you know, uh, I, I will wound you, and I'm sorry, and I'll take responsibility for it, and I'll help you work it out too. Um, but you know, radical honesty and transparency with yourself and your child. And, and this really requires gentleness and self-forgiveness and patience and self-compassion and compassion for the other, your child, <laughs> uh, for them picking you as their parent, <laughs> and uh, self-acceptance of being perfectly imperfect as a parent. And we really need to have the power to be unattached to the outcomes, giving our children the gift of freedom here. And in doing that, if we can cultivate a healthy heart-mind relationship, and we can set the tone for our children on a nervous system level, on the level of the heart, the level of clear thinking and balanced emotions and balanced autonomic nervous system and really clear will impulses. And then we can really deeply nourish the life of their soul. Thank you.
Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, throw us a bone by subscribing to this channel, visiting our social media pages, and hitting the various like, love, and clap buttons. We welcome all comments, criticisms, and random thoughts. Our email is silentassembly at protonmail.com. And if you want to be an angel, we have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash silentassembly. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home. <laughs>